Ever since human beings could talk, we've been telling stories. We continue this tradition of storytelling with our Legacy of the Plains Museum podcast. Now let's sit back and listen to these voices of the prairie winds. Welcome back to the Legacy of the Plains podcast. I am Dave Wolf, uh, your host. And with me today, we have uh, Jerry Lucas. Welcome to the podcast, Jerry. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So we've known each other quite a bit, or quite a while now. Yeah. We've worked on some various projects together. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit about your background uh, uh, for our, view, our listeners? Well, uh, I started out my adult career as a school teacher. I taught for five years. Uh, one year I taught out at McGrew uh, after leaving the education field. I went to work at Scotts Bluff Post Office and retired from that after 21 years. I went to work at Scotts Bluff National Monument uh, to fill in the rest of my time, and uh, that's about where this whole thing starts, I guess. So, um, I've seen couple of your different presentations that you do and you do some living history up at the monument and of course we're going to have you come down and do some for us too um uh but you know you talk about a lot of your presentations being centered on that fur trapping early pioneer the oregon trail native americans what interests you about that time period well when i was a little kid i lived in a town called lawrence kansas and all around town, in the sidewalks and in the parks and stuff, there were plaques commemorating various people who had died in that area during Quantrill's raids. So as a little kid, we rode all over town on our bikes and tried to find as many of those plaques as we could. And on top of that, we would go up to the Museum of Natural History at Kansas University, and there was a horse there on display wearing full military regalia, uh, field regalia, and uh, we would sit there and read that plaque about him uh, any chance we got. And as a little kid, when I got mad at my folks, I would run away from home and I would go up to stare at that horse. The horse's name was Comanche. And according to legend, he was the sole survivor found at the site of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. So through reading, I found out that's a lie. (laughs) But it, it started me my interest in Native American history and in Western uh, expansion history. Plus, through Lawrence, Kansas, runs one of the branches of the old Santa Fe Trail, one of the branches of the Oregon-California Trail, and in 1954, when I was seven or eight years old, uh, a wagon train came through celebrating the centennial. It was going from Independence, Missouri to Independence, Oregon, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the settlement of 
uh, Independence, Oregon. So that spurred even more interest. So I've been interested in Western expansion history, trail history, Native American history since I was about 10 years old. And when I moved here in 1979 and started looking at the history of this place and the history that surrounds it and and encompasses it, uh, I like to move every five years. I forgot to move a few times. I'm 70 miles from where Crazy Horse was killed, 20 miles from the Horse Creek Treaty, about eight hours to the Little Bighorn, three hours to Wounded Knee, two or three hours to Wounded Knee, uh, six hours to Sand Creek, four hours to Beecher's Island. And there's just a lot of Native American history and Native American and European interaction history in this area. And then the Oregon Trail goes right through here along with the Pony Express and uh, the Telegraph. Uh, All part of a very colorful picture of the expansion of uh, uh, the United States. Yeah, that's interesting. When I when I read down your list of uh, the presentations that you have, the the wide variety, uh, but they all kind of centered on that that kind of theme. Um, what what particularly did you find interesting about the the fur traders? Because we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about the the traders and trappers specifically. Uh, but what what did you find so interesting about them? Well, in an overall view. Uh just the fact that we, our, our history that we're taught in school does very little to talk about how they contributed to the expansion of this country and to the economy of this country, and yet they had a very powerful influence on it. Uh, part of the reason the Oregon Trail goes through this area is because of those fur trappers and fur traders uh, and those mountain men that at the end of the uh, peak of the fur trade had to find some new things to do to keep busy and they became the scouts and guides for the western pioneers, pioneers heading to Oregon and California. And why'd they go through here? because they'd been using this area for 20 years. They knew it. They knew the water. They knew the Indians. They knew, you know, uh, they knew the area. And I I find this area fascinating also. Um, I've read a couple books, um, one uh, about the South Pass and how the significance of South Pass and without it, uh, the, the, how, how our history would have been changed just trying to get through the Rocky Mountains with, with, with horses was difficult, let alone a wagon. Yeah. Uh, and fur trappers um, helped with that. Of course, Native Americans knew about the yeah. pass, and, um, but kind of stumbled upon it by, or the early fur traders stumbled upon it by accident. And then yeah. all of a sudden, here was this nice, wide open area. Well, it, you mentioned South Pass. Uh, prior to that, if we were going to head west, if we wouldn't have 
discovered South Pass. We would have been following Lewis and Clark route up the Missouri, through the Rocky Mountains, over all those rough peaks. And uh, it would take almost a year to get to Oregon instead of the four to six months uh, that it took uh, going through South Pass. And the discovery of South Pass was an accident. And it was uh, probably a very joyous accident uh, for uh, Robert Stewart, who in 1812 was the first known white man to go through and record going through what we know today as South Pass, which is the lowest pass in the Rocky Mountains. If we wouldn't have had that, we'd either gone, like I said, up the Missouri and across those mountains or down through uh, along the uh, Santa Fe Trail and around through Arizona and no telling what would have happened there. Right, yeah, because now you've got expanses of deserts and uh, still not the most uh, hospitable terrain um, going through. So, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, the, the, the trip clear down through South America, around South America and back up. And um, uh, so, I, you know, you, you have some of these fortuitous discoveries and, um, and South Path definitely, South Pass is definitely one of those that I think is underappreciated in, in, um, in our, in our country's history. Yeah. Well, it's it's probably, as I said, when Robert Stewart discovered it, he was working for John Jacob Astor. And Astor told him not to tell anyone because he wanted to exploit the use of that for his own company and, and his own uh, economic uh, purposes. And... John Jacob Astor is his link to the fur trade is he's been doing the fur trade since he basically came to this country at the age of 17, I believe, 16 or 17. And he started selling uh, flutes and tin whistles and anything he could uh, in New York. And as he got more and more money, he expanded into the fur trade along the Great Lakes and then into the old Northwest Territory, which is northern Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, along the rim of the Great Lakes. And he actually becomes the first true millionaire in the United States through the fur trade. Yeah, and we're going to get into the economic impact because uh, I agree with what you just said and we said a little bit earlier is that I think it's underappreciated the the economic value that uh, a lot of these trappers and traders and and Native Americans that participated in it too uh, to uh, what it actually did not just for the U.S. economy but European economies also so because mm-hmm. those those pelts were um, were exported all over. All over Europe, and uh, so it's it's definitely a lot uh, we can talk about. But we're going to take a real short break, uh, and we'll be back uh, real soon to talk to uh, and continue our talk with Jerry. This legacy of the Plains Museum podcast is brought to you through the generous contributions of our friends at Platte Valley Companies, Sandberg Implement, and Intralinks.
Hi, this is Dave Wolf, director of Legacy of the Plains Museum here in Gary, Nebraska. I'm inviting you to visit our new website, LegacyPodcast.net, where you'll find more information about our upcoming guests, special subjects, and the unique history of the High Plains. Be sure to like and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Well, welcome back. Uh, we're here with Jerry Lucas, and we're going to get into a little bit um, about the fur trading and trapping specifically. Um, when I we first moved to Scotts Bluff uh, in uh, the late 1980s, all we heard about was Hiram Scott. But we're going to talk a little bit about him later, but that was really our first kind of foray that there was fur trading going on in this area uh, that, that we knew of. But I want to talk a little bit about it in general. In the last segment, we talked about the economy. Uh, just how important was the fur trapping trading to the U.S. economy? Well, the fur trade industry has existed in the in on the North American continent since it became inhabited. Uh, Native American cultures, Native American groups would trade furs for other goods uh, back and forth. Uh, with the introduction of the Europeans, uh, it became uh, a more uh, predominant uh, part of the economy. Uh, the Europeans needed the furs for clothing to keep warm in the winter because they hadn't, coming over here from Europe, they only had so much clothing they could bring uh, with them. So they needed the furs for the clothing and they would trade back and forth with Native Americans Native Americans would teach them how to hunt and get and treat the furs so they could wear them uh, and that became very vital to the survival of the early uh, early pilgrims if you want to call them that uh, the early Europeans coming into this country as the industry and the population of the Europeans grew, interest in uh, North American furs uh, over in Europe uh, began to grow because their furs were beginning to dwindle. Uh, the furs they used for their nice, big, fancy fur hats for the military, the big, tall uh, felt uh, hats that were over there were made of beaver felt. Uh, they needed more beaver uh, for those hats. Then the fancier men's top hats and tri-corner hats were all beaver felt or were other forms of uh, uh, furs off of wa from wildlife. So they needed a new source for furs. And here's this unexploited uh, commodity in the United States. And so they would buy furs from North American companies uh, to use in Europe. So it was a very vital part of both European economy and the North American economy. And in North America, we had two highly known European companies uh, trading for furs, and that's the Hudson Bay Company and the original Northwest Fur Company, 
which is out of both are out of Canada. Uh, later in the history of the fur trade, the two will merge and become just the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, in the United States, we had uh, John Jacob Astor's North American Fur Company. And then along the Mississippi River, we had Manuel Lisa. Um, Joseph Rubidoux uh, and his clan. Uh, we had uh, Mr. Clark of Lewis and Clark and his company. Um, we had several other uh, smaller companies, the Missouri Fur Company, uh, and they were all competing for the same goods. So the central marketplace was St. Louis, and it grew as the fur trade grew. Uh, and then companies started either selling out to each other or being absorbed by another company. And that at one point, as I said, John Jacob Astor was probably the largest fur company in North America. And he even started expanding. He wanted to go out to the West Coast and uh, then head over to the Orient and to Russia and set up trading over there and dominate the world in the fur trade. Huh. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that aspect of it. That's... Yeah. Well, we on the West Coast, we had Chinese fur traders. We had Japanese fur traders. We had Russian fur traders uh, from Alaska down into uh, northern, uh, what is now northern Oregon. Well, it's, and it's interesting that, um, the like you said, St. Louis being kind of that, that uh, uh, shipping point where they would come in and um, that they would be able to sell their pulse and then sell, um, ship them to wherever, whether it's the United States yeah. or the rest of the United States and then to Oregon. Uh, but it wasn't easy work. And one, am I correct to assume in one disastrous campaign, um, you could lose your whole company. Uh, you could lose your whole company and your whole life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was not easy. Um, it got to the point where companies would sponsor men to go out, and you had to trade with that sponsoring company if you worked for John Jacob Astor, and he f outfitted you. All your furs went to John Jacob Astor. But while you were out there, you were out there for years. You were out there 24-7, 365. You were out on the, on the, in the wilderness trapping and uh, cleaning furs and, and prepping them for market. Uh, and you were surrounded by all sorts of hostility, be it human hostility from other traders and trappers, from Native Americans, or animal deprivation, uh, the grizzly bears, the mountain lions, the bobcats, the wolves, the uh, and other predatory animals, uh, you never knew. Uh, 
you were on guard constantly. Uh, it got to the point where men would uh, come together and camp together, uh, even though they were working by themselves. They were still staying socially together. If you were out there by yourself and had no other contact, you could get pretty loopy. I <laughs> well, and, and just the simple fact of you, um, you know, twisting an ankle or breaking a leg or even getting a scratch that could get infected. Um, I know you had some, you know, traditional remedies for it, but... Uh, if you're all by yourself, there's and you break your leg and it's in the middle of winter, there's not a, not necessarily a good chance of you surviving that. So, um, so that's uh, to me that's just fascinating. I think you know the the convenience and comfortable lives we live now, uh, where this was happening 200 years ago, was I think is a is kind of a I think it's hard for us to to imagine. We think it's roughing it when we go on a camping trip and the air conditioning goes out right in your in your camper and um, and these brave and there was some women too that came along with them too. So it was brave men and women that that really uh, forged a, a lot of these uh, pathways. But to be to see this majestic of the mountains mm. and and be able to know that you're one of very few people out there, I think would also be kind of interesting. But we'll get in that type of person. Um, we mentioned the Platte River Road. We didn't call it that, but basically that's what it became. Uh, and a, a, a super highway, if you want to call it, of, of transportation from east and west. In one of your presentations, you have kind of a list of some famous people that of, of who traveled that road. And I know you've named some of them. Is there anybody else that we've left out that some of our listeners would well, know? In 1824, um, William Ashley, after having some trouble on the upper Missouri, decided to follow a river that the Otto Indians in eastern Nebraska called the Nebraska. And working with his company were... Uh, men like uh, William and Milton Sublette, uh, David and Philip Jackson, uh, Robert Campbell, James Bridger, Christopher Carson, Jedediah Smith. Uh, I'm forgetting a couple of them, I know. but uh, And then, of course, his chief field clerk was a man named Hiram Scott. And in 1824, they started following the river west to go to the Rocky Mountains. They weren't looking at trading in between the confluence of the Nebraska and the Missouri. Uh, they weren't looking to trade until they got out to the Rocky Mountains. Now, they may have traded some a little along the way, but their main focus was to get to the Rocky Mountains. Now, there are a lot of old French traders along that route, too. Uh, and, of course, uh, I teasingly tell people that uh, the French think their language is so much more beautiful than anybody else's. They name everything <laughs> that they come across. And so they changed the name of the river from the Nebraska 
to Le Plat. And Aster, or Ashley's uh, trek across the Platte for the, and his companies for the next 20 years turns it into the Great Platte River Road. And you named some heavy hitters in, in not only the, the fur trapping and trading, but early exploration, businessmen, uh, the, that I think uh, just a casual lover of history would know. Um, uh, Jebediah Smith, uh, just what, what he was able to accomplish mm-hmm. in, in relatively short life mm-hmm. because we're not quite sure what happened to him. Well, we, but we, we, there's a pretty good idea that he crossed, um, I think it was the Comanche or Arapaho lands one too many times. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Kit Carson, was who was somebody that I, I read a lot about, and I did not read when I was young, but I read about Kit Carson. Um, uh, of course, he was uh, instrumental in the Fremont, John Fremont explorations and, um, and had great respect from Native Americans, but also great fear from Native Americans, too, because uh, he was uh, quite, quite a man and only, what, 5'5", five, 5'4". Five, five, well, he was probably, uh, among many of the men, he was probably the only one that was close to normal height. <laughs> a lot of the trappers, I mean, Thomas Fitzpatrick, uh, better known, often known as Bad Hand or Broken Hand, uh, was 6'2". Uh, Jedediah Smith was 6'4", six, 6'6". Six, six. Um, uh, I'm not sure about Jackson, uh, how tall he was. Uh, Hiram Scott was 6'4", according to his family. Uh, so a lot of these men stuck out uh, in if they were back in their hometowns uh, where they grew up, they would be considered giants or freaks. Uh, so that's what drove a lot of them to become uh, trappers and traders and hunters that they they became and explorers. Well, and we'll we'll get into a little bit more of that because that, that I didn't know that uh, I'm six four, so I get you know. I'm taller than average, but I don't think I'm myself myself as a giant. Obviously, when there's, you know, lots of mm. seven footers around now. Yeah. But um, so let's let's talk a little bit about what was the reaction um, of uh, uh, from the Native Americans as the trappers started to come in first, and did it change as more and more uh, of the the Americans came into the uh, their territories. In a lot of cases, um, the introduction of the Europeans to Native culture was uh, slow, and it was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? It was unusual, and so they didn't really react to it at first. as they started seeing what these white men were doing, they became a little distrustful. And as there came more and more of them, depending on your culture and how close you were to the 
European settlements in the East and what your introduction introduction was. There, it was mixed. Uh, the Pawnee, uh, they were somewhat accepting, whereas some of the other Eastern tribes of the Great Plains were a little hesitant. They were standoffish. They were <clears throat> uh, to the almost to the point of being antagonistic of them, uh, and. As you got into the Great Plains further, the Crow absolutely hated him, uh, hated white influence coming in. But the Crow definitely, uh, any time the Crow had a chance to, to uh, dispatch a uh, trader or a trapper, they took the opportunity. Uh, so it, it was, there were mixed feelings and... It depends on who you allied with to uh, as to how you would be received. If you allied with, say, you allied with uh, the Mandan, well, you well, across the Northern Plains, there were a lot of people that, oh, you're an ally of the Mandan? Sure, come on in, you know. Uh, however, if you walked into a Sioux camp, uh walk softly <laughs> and that's and that's some of the stuff that that i had read um and of course you know, i you know listen to podcasts other podcasts and, and watch historical videos and stuff and you know you had to be careful of what how you identified yourself if you wore um uh one tribe's shirt in another tribe's territory, it could get you killed instantly just mm-hmm. because of the traditional yeah. rivalries and, and uh, conflicts between those. So, um, and unfortunately, that's a lesson you can't just, oh, okay, shoot, I shouldn't have wore this shirt. You know, I go back. I mean, it, it cost you your life, but but a lot of them were extremely helpful too. And uh, and so I think that's, that's part of the reason why we wanted to uh, talk a little bit about it uh, is because they were... Uh, they did help a lot of the traders. They they became traders themselves and, and helped with that economy. And um, so, well, we're going to get into the individual trapper uh, themselves, but we're going to take another quick break. Uh, we'll be back more uh, with Jerry in just a second. This program has been made possible by the generous contributions of the following. Platte Valley Companies. Visit them at pvbank.com. Kara Baumgartner at Estetique West in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. Intralinks. Visit them at intralinks.com. Sandberg Implement. You can visit them at sandbergimplement.com. Welcome back to the Legacy of the Plains podcast. Um, here, of course, with Jerry Lucas, and we've had some really good talks about um, kind of the history of fur trading and trapping. Um, but I want to get into the individual trapper. So, a lot of people have seen the movie Revenant and the story of Hugh Glass. And um, I, what I was kind of disappointed was I watched the the movie, and the movie was really good. 
But then I wanted to more, know more about it, and it was hard to find a lot of information on, on him. So, but when you look at an individual trapper, we kind of already talked about it. Um, you know, they're uh, a lot of them were tall, so they kind of stood out. Um, what were some other characteristics that made a trapper successful, or um, kind of enticed somebody to go out and, and basically be by themselves for long stretches of time? Well, a lot of them, uh, and I think this probably goes back to when they were growing up, uh, were, uh, I don't want to say isolationists, but they were loners. They would be by themselves a lot when they were younger. Partially probably because of their height or some unique trait about them. Um, The other thing is they were just naturally curious about you know, what's behind that tree, what's over that hill, what's down that river, what's up that river, Where's, where does that lake start, you know. Uh, they were just kind of naturally curious people. They were outdoorsy type of people. I don't know of many that were uh, really interested in being inside, uh, there are stories of English and, and French noble people coming over and going out into the wilderness for a year and then going back. They go back to England or France or wherever, and you never hear of them coming back. Yeah, they're done. They're <laughs> yeah. done with it. Yeah, I've done that. Been there, done that. I'm done. Uh, but the mountain men, you know, they. Uh, you take Daniel Boone. He lived on the east side of the Appalachians as a young man, but he wanted to know what was on the west side. Moves to the west side. Settlement starts taking over, and he wants to know what's down the river, and he moves down the river, and he, and that's kind of the uh, mentality or the personality of the men that become the long-term trappers and traders out in the mountains year in, year out. Well, it's interesting that you say that because it makes sense when you look back at the ones that survived all the way through. You know, they had multiple wives. You know, they would start a farm or a ranch, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm going to go over here. They, They were never able to really settle down. Like you said, What's behind this? What's over here? What's just past the horizon? Um, and that was so true for so many of, uh, of the uh, trappers and traders and explorer scouts that, that did. Um, so you have a character that you've invented, um, which is rather, rather famous around our parts. Um, and his name is Frenchie. So how did you come up with Frenchie? Uh, <laughs> when I started working for the Park Service at Scotts Bluff National Monument in 2006, I noticed that all of our conversations that were taking place were taking pl- were about the Oregon Trail and uh, the pioneers. And yet nobody was talking about why is this place named Scott's Bluff and why does the Oregon Trail go through here instead of following the Santa Fe or 
two known trails, the Santa Fe or the Lewis and Clark. So I went to my uh, chief ranger at that time, who was Pete Swisher, and I said, look, you know, we've got this park, it's named Scotts Bluff National Monument, and nobody's telling people why it's named that. I says, we need to have somebody doing living history talking about the fur trade and the uh, uh, mountain men and, and uh, scouts and guides. And, and uh, Pete looked at me very casually and he said, well, you know, you're kind of a rugged looking guy. You're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so they went and they brought, bought me an outfit and I put it on and went up to look to show the gang and say, okay, what do we do from here? Uh, and one of the guys looked at it and called me Frenchy. <laughs> so that's where the name came from. Uh, and then I wrote a whole story about how Frenchy got the name Frenchy uh, when he was in the fur trade and he's not French and a whole bunch of other stuff and I'm not going to go into that but uh, part of it came from the fact that the outfit that we bought was patterned after a French after the French traders uh, on the upper Mississippi and the uh, upper Missouri um, so that's the story behind the name. Uh, the character, how I developed the character was just from reading books about the various mountain men. Uh, read a little bit of the description of Jedediah Smith and uh, Jim Bridger and uh, Thomas Fitzpatrick and Hiram Scott himself uh, just to mix and match and put things together to make it so that it was a believable uh, he was a believable person or personage and, and that's a lot easier said than done I mean you know you, you're going to have that one person that comes up and is like well you know you know that that rifle and that hat really aren't in the same era um, but it's uh and that's something we want to do here more at our museum is more of that living history. And, and because I think what, what I love about it is when I go up to you and I see you in character and you are you're talking um, like they, they would talk. You've got the supplies like they would have. I'm all of a sudden thrust back into it. You know, I've become a part of the history. And that's what I love so much about it. And, um, and, and instead of just being like I'm being told this is the type of equipment they would have. I'm actually, you're discussing with me why you would carry this. And so you, you become an active participate, participant in, in history. Um, and so do you have any other characters or is Frenchie the only one? Well, basically, uh, for me, Frenchie's the only one. Uh, I've, uh, I have an outline for a character that was later in history that... Uh, and it is uh, an 1867, 68 infantry soldier who is dismantling Fort Mitchell, but 
that goes into a whole other <laughs> set of programs. Um, so, if Frenchie was out there, he, like you've mentioned before, he would be uh, sponsored by a group, or sponsored by a company. Uh, they would supply him, and then he would start off on, on the road. So he goes out, um, and you've kind of already already talked about this, but maybe we can expand a little bit. They did a lot of stuff by themselves, but then there was the, sometimes they'd be in groups. Mm-hmm. Was there any specific, I mean, I don't know, was there, was there, trying to figure out why they would do that versus why they wouldn't? Uh, well, they would cluster together, especially in the winter. Safety in numbers. Uh, that's a big thing. Also, uh, you could have somebody staying in camp, tending the fire, preparing uh, food, you know, preparing hides, whatever needed to be done while the rest were out collecting, and then they would rotate. Um, you know, somebody else would stay in the next time, and there's safety in number. You didn't want to get caught out by yourself if there was a a hunting party of Indians going through and they happened to be from one of those groups that didn't like white men or didn't like the Europeans or didn't like anybody that's not their tribe uh, in the area. So there's safety in numbers. That was a big thing. Uh, The other thing is, you know, camaraderie. I mean, we are social animals. I mean, uh, yes, they were loners for the most part. But every once in a while, a little human contact is necessary. And so, and of course, we hear about the big rendezvous. Yes. Um, this is different. What you're describing is different than what a rendezvous. Could you yeah. go into a little bit of what, what those were? Okay. Um, these little encampments would be uh, four or five guys, maybe as many as 10. And did, but not, it, there was no trading going on. It was just, they were there for safety in numbers. Did they split up the hides equally or No, did, you you, you, you took your hides? you took your hides, okay. they took their hides. Uh you uh, for the most part. I mean, there may have been some that did it in a communal uh basis, but for the most part because a lot of times let's say you and I are in a camp. I may be working for John J. Cabaster, you may be working for uh Pierre Chantou two different uh, organizations. I'm not going to give you my furs. You're not going to give me your furs. But we're together because there's some guy out there that might be looking to take our hair. Or take both of our furs. (laughs) Yeah. Or both. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, and the rendezvous and Actually, the rendezvous were, the Western rendezvous were started by William Ashley, and they were started as an open place for free trading. If you were a member of the American Fur Company, if you were funded and mounted by the, uh, uh, outfitted by the American Fur Company, Ashley didn't care. You could come in and trade with him. If one of his traders that he outfitted went up and traded with an American Fur Company trading post, 
He didn't care. It was all open. Anybody could come in and trade. He didn't care. That's the open rendezvous, the Western rendezvous. In Canada, rendezvous were still company. Everybody from Hudson Bay Company would come to a Hudson Bay rendezvous. Northwest, anybody from Northwest would come to a Northwest rendezvous. They were centered around the company. Out here in the Western Plains, it was on in the Western Rockies, it was open to anyone uh, after about 1825. So, you know, there was no, you know, you didn't have a, a phone to keep track of your calendar and stuff. So were those set, you know, the previous year or the next year would be set the previous year? This is where we're yeah. at. Um, well, let's, let's start out. Let's say we're at the... Uh, uh, we're on the Green River for a rendezvous. And at the end of the rendezvous, they say next year we're going to be on the Powder River or we're going to be in this canyon or we're going to be at Bear Lake or wherever. Uh, and that's and we'll be there from this time, you know, so it was preset, kind of. Uh, either that or somebody, a runner would go out and say, hey, we're moving, we're going to go to this place. Or sometimes you would have rendezvous at a couple of different sites uh, at the same time. Or you might have one in the early spring on the Green River. You might have another one a little later in the summer on the White River. So, you know, landmarks, you know, GPS now has kind of elimin not eliminated, but definitely decreased the value of landmarks. And when I remember when I was little, you know, directions were the old stump by so-and-so's farm, go to the hill where, you know, we had that um, um, cow crossing or whatever, I mean, you know. Mm. And so landmarks were extremely important. And uh, these trappers had to be able to do some... Um, Map making abilities to be able to a know where they're at, but be be able to get to where they need to go to uh, to get their uh, their goods and then to uh, sell off their furs. Yeah, so. that's that's true. They uh, one of them was an excellent map maker, and unfortunately, we lost a lot of his material uh, after his death, and then when his brother's farmhouse burned down. (laughs) Jedediah Smith was probably one of the best map makers uh, that we had. Uh, uh, He uh, had a lot of maps drawn, and a lot of them he drew for other people and gave to other people uh, to help them follow their way. but uh, for the most part, yeah, it was landmarks. Uh, the oh, I'm trying to think of. There's a site in uh, Wyoming, uh, and it's south of uh, uh, Jackson's Hole uh, that they refer to a lot, uh, and it's 
somebody's fort. Well, there's not a fort there. It's just where there's a bunch of rocks piled around and... <laughs> and well, it's like Mitchell Pass here between... Yeah. between um, uh, the Well, the monument itself is a landmark. Chimney Rock right. was a landmark, yeah. right? But they called it Devil's Gate. Mm-hmm. Well, how many Devil's Gates were there along the Oregon Trail? Well, there's... There's another one out in Wyoming, I think. Right, and I think there's a couple in Utah. I mean, every yeah. time, uh, whenever I yeah. read about it, there always seems to be a, a Devil's yeah. Gate that's been added. Well, Chimney Rock, there's five of them in the United States. Heck, there's two of them, in, or three of them, in the Western United States. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and so, um, but they were such, so much more important, especially when you're traveling by foot, or by horse, uh, but a lot of it, you know, walking and pretty slow travel to be able to kind of sh- mark your your um, your progress, but also just to be able to identify and and having the same words for a river, you know, the the Big Sandy, you know, well if you call that the you know the Green Grass River, you know, how do you be able to do it? So to be able to do the map making and get those names kind of as a um, uh, the same as the same names was, was extremely important. Um, real quick before we we take one one of our last breaks, if Frenchie's going out there, what were the equipment that he would absolutely have to have? Okay, if he's going out to be a trapper, he's going he needs traps. He needs a rifle. He needs powder. Uh, he needs knives and axes. He needs uh, shelter. He needs, uh, of course, food, coffee, sugar, flour, cornmeal. Uh, I'd say bacon, but he's going to be eating fresh meat off the land. Uh, you know, he's. those are the things that he's actually going to need need. Uh, and... Then a pack animal to pack them, uh, to pack his furs out, and to pack his goods in. And, and none of that stuff you would be able to make up in the mountains. Oh, it'd, it'd take you more time to make a lot of that stuff uh, up in the mountains, and then you're not hunting and. You're not trapping, you're trapping and you're not collecting furs and furs is what you're you're right. getting to make the next season on. So what were some of the luxuries, some of the things that that people, because you always hear the rendezvous, this is where you would get your luxury yeah. items, right? Uh, and then you'd get your essentials and go back up. Yeah. But were there any luxury items that they liked? You know, I, I, in my research, I've never run across anything that actually struck me as something they would look upon as a luxury. Uh, most of the stuff I've come across is, is essentials. Or uh, One thing I do know, that early on, when they first get out there, they appreciated having a nice, sharp uh, razor, because Indians don't trust you if they can't see your face. And once the Indians get to know you and know your trappings, then you can let your face get covered oh. up. 
didn't know that. But, but uh, uh, for the most part, uh, I really, you know, yeah, maybe whiskey. <laughs> uh, but uh, outside of that, no, I can't think. Having somebody else cook for you <laughs> uh, was probably considered a luxury. <laughs> Well, I guess when you uh, especially have, if they were a good cook. Good. Uh, well, I guess what, you know, if you have limited space yeah, uh, and limited, uh, especially to, with your pack animal, you don't, you know, you don't want to carry a lot of things that you don't need. And that was something a lot of the um, immigrants on the Oregon, California and Mormon trails found out as you go, as you go along the trail and you see things dispersed. Um uh, because, you know, eventually they become not essential. Uh, and so lots of lots of things were, were left behind. So, um, well, we're going to take one last break. Uh, we're going uh, to come back with Jerry and we're going to talk about Hiram Scott. This program has been made possible by the generous contributions of the following. Platte Valley Companies. Visit them at pvbank.com. Kara Baumgartner at Estetique West in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. Interlinks. Visit them at interlinks.com. Sandberg Implement. You can visit them at sandbergimplement.com. Jerry, you've been great so far, but we're getting to the, the the meat of this discussion, which is, I think, one of the most interesting things that we've had when we when we moved down here was um, I would ask people who Hiram Scott was, and I got pretty much the same answer. He was a fur trapper. Um, I'm like, well, why is the monument named after him? That's when the continuity of the story ended. I heard, I think, five or six different myths on how he died, where he died, how he got here. Um, but first of all, tell we, we, we've mentioned him before, but tell me, who was Hiram Scott? Well, <clears throat> Hiram Scott was the son of a an Irishman whose family had fought in the Scottish and English Wars on the side of Scotland and had to uh, flee to France and once in France received a land grant from Spanish, uh, the King of Spain to settle in the Spanish New World. And the family exercised that and settled in the area of what is now St. Charles, Missouri. His father's name, I believe, is John Scott, who may have been influential in uh, Missouri becoming a uh, territory of the, uh, the Missouri Territory uh, after the Louisiana Purchase. Scott was born 
according to research of Merrill Mattis in 1805 in either St. Genevieve or Boone Settlement in Missouri, which is now in the area of St. Charles, Missouri. And in the, his early years, he, according to the Missouri State Historical Society, uh, one of their articles, he may have been a log rafter until about 1822 when he declared bankruptcy. I've seen documents on his declaration of a a Hiram Scott's declaration of bankruptcy. Uh, they called it insolvency. Uh, in 1823, 1822, 1823, he goes to work as a field clerk for William Ashley and Major Andrew Henry in their fur trading company going up the Missouri River. 1824, he's still with the Ashley Company going across the Nebraska to the Rocky Mountains as a field clerk for trading uh uh, for first, and he remains with that company until the last entry in Ashley's pay vouchers or pay ledger concerning Scott says, "1828, Scott Hiram Scott paid two hundred and eighty dollars for the season." We do know that Scott is a real man. Ashley has a lot of letters in his files to his partners over the years saying we have to keep our eye on Hiram Scott. We have to make sure we keep him involved with us. Uh, he is a very important man. We do know that in 1827, according to Ashley's records, he sends Hiram Scott and a man named James Brufy out to Bear Lake in the winter to uh, trade in the early spring for the early furs so they can get back to St. Louis and set the market price for first. Get the highest dollar value they can. We do know that that winter, 1827-1828, is extremely harsh. We know that they lost, the company lost three pack animals going out to Bear Lake. We know that when they got to Bear Lake, food supplies were starting to spoil. They were getting stretched thin. Fresh meat in the area was very hard to find because the animals had left the area to find better feeding grounds because the winter was so harsh. Men were taking ill from either eating bad food or uh, from the weather or whatever. We do know in the spring of 1828 that the trading center was attacked by Indians 
and I may get this wrong, but they're, it's either the Blackfeet or the Blackfoot Indians that attacked the village. One of those is a Sioux tribe, and they wouldn't be the ones that were attacking them. It's the other one. So if you happen to know the difference, you, you're better off than I am because I keep getting them confused. But And in John Sunders' book, Bill Sublette, Mountain Man, he says that Sublette says that one of the men that may have been injured in the attack might have been Scott. Now, here's where myth and legend takes over. We actually have no first-hand accounts of what actually happened. We don't know that Scott actually was one of those injured in the battle. We don't know if Scott was one of those that took ill. Because we don't have a first... We haven't found a first-hand account yet. We do know that common practice for that era is that if somebody is too ill to maintain travel with the main body of the company, they are set aside with two people who are to see to their safe return to civilization or to see to their final rest. And we'll go back right here to the story of Hugh Glass which although the movie is a very, very fantastically shot <laughs> movie, it's in the wrong place. Right, yeah. Well, it took place on the plains of South Dakota. Right, right. Now, uh, and the same thing happened. He, he was injured so badly that somebody had to take care of him. And those two men actually thought he was dead and they buried him. They didn't bury him very deep because he crawled out of the grave. And right. Yeah. So, but here, two men are helping Scott traverse from wherever it was he was set aside back to St. Louis. Where is, where's Bear Lake? It's on the border of Idaho and Wyoming. Okay. Just, just so yeah. our, our listeners yeah. that might not know the, the geography, yeah. just so that they know. Yeah. It's somewhere way west of here. Way west of here, right. He's being transported. At one point, um, one of the legends says that he was put in a bull boat and transported down the river until they got to the confluence of the Larame River and the Nebraska, or Platte, where the bull boat was either crushed in rapids or capsized or something happened, and the men lost their supplies and their weapons and barely made it to shore with Scott in tow. Scott's near dead. They looked at each other, did the math. Is it better that three men die or one? Their mass said it's better that one die, right. and they took off and left him. According to that legend, from the confluence of La Reme Creek or La Reme River and the Nebraska, which is what the area we know as Fort Laramie yep. today, yep. 
He traversed some 60 to 80 miles, either overland or along the river, which would be even further, to get to this point. The legend says the following spring, he is discovered as a company is heading out to trade for furs. His skeleton. Now, how would they know it was his skeleton? Well, as I said earlier, Hiram Scott only stood, you know, he was just a little short guy at six foot four. Right. 240 to 260 pounds. There were trappings with the clothes, and the trappings are his clothes, uh, a jacket, a shirt, a pair of pants, something that was unique to him. The, According to one version of this legend, the company head of the company going out was a man named William Sublette, who had worked with Scott since 1822, 1823, when he joined Ashley's Fur Company. He identifies it as Scott and the range of bluffs that used to be known as the bluffs on the Platte were, they started referring to them as Scott's Bluffs. And that's one version. There are three main legends. One was written in uh, 1830 by Warren Ferris. One is written in 1832, recorded in 1832, by a gentleman named Benjamin Bonneville. In along with that, Benjamin Bonneville's version is rewritten in a book by Washington Irving called The Adventures of Captain Bonneville. There is another version of the legend that is written in 18, I think it's 1836. And I don't remember who who it is that recorded that. I think it's Fields, but I'm not sure. And those are the three basic legends. But everybody that comes along and tells that story tells it a little differently and changes something. Warren Ferris, in his version, says that the company made it to the area of the Great Bluffs. And the bluff that we know as Scott's Bluff today is referred to as the Great Bluff. And that he died there and they buried him. Or that's oversimplifying it, but that's basically Ferris's version. Everyone else has something different. I've heard that he was shot playing cards. <laughs> I've heard that he was uh, shot trying to steal uh, first from somebody else. Uh, I mean, you know, we, there's yeah, all sorts of... I bear mean, attack, I've heard. Yeah. Uh, attacked by Native Americans. Yeah. Uh, fell ill. Yeah. Um, lots the, and lots of the, ones. The bear attack comes from family lore, which indicates that... 
the returning company was over in the vicinity of what we know as Rubidoux Pass today. Mm-hmm. And Scott's either cousin or his nephew is attacked by a grizzly bear. Scott steps in, gets the, the kid away from the bear and has mauled himself and dies a couple of days later and is buried somewhere in the vicinity of Rubidoux Pass. Well, we know it's Rubidoux Pass. Which is just a couple miles to the south of Scottsbluff National Monument. Yeah. Uh, but I, my research, I've been just trying to find out where what's the foundation. Is there a foundation for these various rumors? And yes, there's a foundation for he became ill. He, you know, medically ill, uh, eating bad food at the rendezvous uh, site or at the tra- uh, trading encampment may have caused him to become too ill to travel. The battle in the spring that took place there, there's grounds for the injury in an Indian attack. Uh, other things, you know, uh, maybe he drank bad water coming down the river, you know. You don't know. Uh, we, we, we just don't have that firsthand account of where and how it happened. And we don't have the firsthand account that says he was found here by these people and this is what we did. Uh, Grant Shumway and his history of the people of western Nebraska records that the names of the two men that he was left with as being uh, Roy, R-O-I, and Bissonette. Well, there are five different Bissonettes <laughs> in the uh, uh, Leroy Hafen book, Fur Traders and Mountain Men of the Far West. There are five recorded. So you'd have to go through all five of those to find out which one it was. And there is no Roy, R-O-I. If you go to the Museum of the uh, Mountain Men in Pinedale, Wyoming, they have no record of a man named Roy. In checking with the Museum of the Fur Trade, they don't have us. So then Shumway also says that it was a man named Gonneville, Rubidoux, and Bissonnette were the ones that found him. I've looked for a Gonneville throughout the history of the fur trade, and the only Gonneville I can find is a navigator. Uh, Portuguese navigator in 1620s. So 200 years before um, Hiram would be out here. So, you know, without more research, everything is myth and legend. So do you have one that you think is accurate? Or would you believe what happened? The... The two stories, uh, the story of the illness and 
the Indian attack can be supported by the events that happened out at Bear Lake. Right. Uh, the Scott family lore that says the grizzly bear uh, attack, that can be supported by the fact that, yes, there were grizzlies in this area yeah, at that time. Was. Absolutely. And it was not that unusual. Mm-hmm. So those are... Those are good points of foundation. As far as beyond that, I'm a storyteller. (laughs) As you well know, Dave. Yes, I do. (laughs) I'm a storyteller. I base my stories on truth, on historic fact. I stay true to those historic facts as long as I can. And then I tell the myth I weave the myths and the legends to make them th- what they are. And I think that's, to me, that's why part of the reason why history is so intriguing, right? at least this is for me, is that we don't know. So there's, we're going to keep asking ourselves these questions. And his, his name, his story is going to be completely, or, um, uh, it's going to be retold over and over and over again. Um, and so it's, to me, it's, yes, but I like to find out the answer. But as, as somebody that works in the historical field, I don't know if I want to. Like, it it gets people excited. It's the same thing about the, um, your horse at, at uh, uh, University of Kansas, right? Yes. You go up there, you're thinking, oh, this is the sole survivor of the little bighorn. And, but it made you go up and research it. It made you find out more about it. And then you find out, well, shoot, nope, that's not necessarily true. Um, but, but it's still some historical context, and it got, there, it got you excited about history. Uh, and I think there's, there's an intrinsic value to that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't think we should be like, you know, we should lie about things and I mm. I know you're not doing that mm. but with the horse thing you know if yeah. if you know it's not the survival yeah. maybe you should but but it but it's the wonderment it's the same thing with the fur traders what's beyond that tree yeah. what's down that river mm. what's over the horizon yeah. um, and that's what we're trying to do here because because uh, this has been been awesome yeah. again I my my dad's big into fur trading and trapping we we um, we come from Montana. Uh, Thompson Falls is where my dad graduated from high school. So that was named after David Thompson, who was an early fur trapper for the um, Hudson Bay Company. Uh, I think he was 19, or excuse me, 1806, 1807, but was one of the first people to see um, a lot of the same area that, that Lewis and Clark went up there, Thompson Falls, the uh, Clark River, the uh, Coeur d'Alene Lake. I mean, you know, just some of the first people, he even got over into the area where Spokane was, set up some of the first mm-hmm. houses is what they called them, the first trade trapping houses. Um, and so that's to me, is interesting. Why do you think Hiram Scott is important? Well, any link... Anything that ties you, ties the the past to the future, 
in in the future to people. Uh, I think you know it's all important, I mean, and it. I think it, part of it's important because it stimulates our imagination. Part of it's important because it is the history of a place and a time that will never exist again. Uh, we have, you know, all these bigger than life figures. I mean, Jedediah Smith, uh, Thomas Fitzpatrick, uh, George Armstrong Custer, Christopher Carson, uh, James Butler Hickok, uh, William Frederick Cody, and they're all bigger than life. And yet here's somebody that nobody has heard of, but that people thought was important. He was important enough and was of strong enough character that they named an area a landmark area for them in his honor. And an important one, yeah. an important landmark. Yeah, that, that it would prove to be an important yeah. landmark, you know, later on. But uh, we don't, we don't just take and name something after somebody because they were a nice guy. He was important to them for his honesty, for his integrity, for his durability, for his longevity, you know, for his honesty. You know, whatever reason they thought he was, it was important that they preserve that for him. I'm going to steal that because I think that's that was phenomenal. I love the links from the past to the future and the future to the people. Uh, I was having this conversation the other uh, yesterday, matter of fact, with a good friend. I'm, you know, the big events are great, right? Um, you know, Battle of Gettysburg, the, um, you know, you go back to 1066 and the Norman invasion of England, right? All these big, big events. But to me, I want to know how are the individual people living? What were their stories? And I think that's why I like my museum, my museum, the museum here at Legacy so much is that we're a history of everyday people living. And because there's a connection there. Uh, and I love I love the fact that it's it's a link from the future back to the people that did it. And I love how you put that. So I'm going to steal that just so you know. Um, but I completely agree. Uh, and I also am a storyteller. That'll be ten dollars. Right. Okay. <laughs> we'll have some royalties on that then. Um, uh, but and, and part of the reason why we're doing the podcast is that when you when we first sat down to talk, you said that there's so much history around here, and I think a lot of people, even living here, don't realize the historical value they have around and the the treasures they do. So that's why we're doing this to have people like you come talk in. We're um, we're gonna try to get. Uh, Justin Quetzal, who's the chief ranger up at the monument, just to come in and talk about the monument itself. Um, so hopefully that'll be our next one. But just just to get these stories out, 
and and to to listen to them and see the hardships and the triumphs and the 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 struggles and the successes and just of everyday people not just the famous ones not just the bigger in life ones like you said um so uh so jerry thanks again for coming in i really appreciate it anytime um well maybe we'll have to go down to the list there's already a couple other ones that i'll have i've added one more okay well good we'll get that one on there um well thanks everybody for tuning in to uh this episode of our podcast uh feel free to come back at legacypodcast.net um we'll have a couple more here in the next month or so uh so again uh thanks jerry and thanks everybody for listening Thank you for listening, and join us again soon for another Legacy of the Plains Museum podcast. We'll be listening for more voices on the prairie winds. Special thanks to Caspin Haley for his musical contribution for the voices on the prairie wind. Learn more at Caspin Haley Music on Facebook. Legacy of the Plains Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to collecting, preserving, and interpreting the history of settlement and agriculture of the High Plains for present and future generations. Look for Voices on the Prairie Wind podcast on Apple Podcasts and other well-known podcast apps on your mobile device or visit our website at legacypodcast.net to download, listen, or share.